job. Thanks, Tom, for taking my job for me and missing me. Thanks for missing yeah, I did. me. <clears throat> I actually want to do spend some time uh, thanking Dr. Noer for filling in for me a couple of weeks ago. We got, uh, after two years of waiting, we finally got it. So, uh, and it worked its way right through our household over the course of a couple weeks, and it's still, it's still sitting right here, but I don't think I'm breathing any of it out, so we're okay. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Noah, for filling in. And he was, uh, as soon as we found out I wouldn't be here that Sunday, Doc said, sure, I'll, I'll take the pulpit. And then afterwards, he immediately began complaining about always getting the hard verses, <laughs> the hard pass. <laughs> I'm like, well, you keep volunteering for him. I don't know. Um, and then thank you, Tom, last week. He, was, he had a little bit more prep time because I was planning on being out last weekend because Carrie was supposed to go visit Emma, our oldest, in Colorado, but she had to cancel her trip because she got COVID. So um, anyway, that was planned ahead. That worked out really well. So thank you guys for, for stepping in and leading in that way. And then thanks for those of you who reached out to us through texts or emails or phone calls or meals or different things over the last few weeks. We're really <clears throat> grateful for that and being able to do that. So thank you, and we love you, and it's good to be back. Um, I will probably be doing this throughout. I apologize. Ahead of time, still a little croaky. Speaking of Tom Hall, uh, Tom and Eileen are getting on a plane on Tuesday along with Alicia Myers and Jonas Rice, who I think is in Idaho right now or something. Yes, he is. Thank you. And, uh, and Bella Bonanno. And they're going with uh, 30 or so other people from the northwest region of Young Life to the Dominican Republic uh, to visit with the Young Life clubs there and uh, spend time getting to, trying to figure out how we can better partner with them. And as I thought about that, I'm like, that is so cool that out of the five people from Crook County that are going on this trip, four of them are from First Baptist Church, uh, which is a really cool representation we have. So we'd lo love for you guys to pray for Tom and Eileen and Jonas and Alicia and, and Bella as they go on that trip. Keep them safe. But obviously, the, God would do what he wants to do in that trip in uh, partnership with the clubs there. When we went to the DR a few years ago, it was just a blast to get to know the people there and see what they do. And then to have the possibility now to partner with them long-term is, is really cool. So be praying for those guys. And speaking of Tom Hall, <clears throat> a few months ago, a couple months ago, Tom and I had jury duty together. And how many of you have ever served on a jury before? Oh, wow, it's a lot of people. Uh, this is probably the third time in Crick County that I've been called to go to jury duty, but it's only the first time that I actually got on a jury, got on a jury and was able to be on a trial, and, and we went through a whole morning of jury selection, and, and Tom and I, our numbers were close enough to where we got called on the same day, so we're sitting there going through all the jury selection, get called up to the box and interviewed by the, by the different attorneys, and then when they called the jury, it was just a six-person jury. Uh, jury, juror number five uh, was a guy by the name of Tom Hall, and juror number six was a guy by the name of Mike Fay. So two of the elders of First Baptist got to sit on the, <laughs> on the same, uh, and right next to each other, too. It was kind of fun. So uh, we went through this jury trial together, and it was a really, really interesting experience. And it was a time where, as citizens, we were doing our, our duty, really, to 
to, to stop and take time out to hear a case and having to discern and evaluate the truth of a situation. And if you know, if you have kids, you know there's always three sides to every story, right? One, one kid's side, the other kid's side, and then the truth. And um, we had to do that. We had to listen to both sides of the story and then discern the situation based on evidence and based on the testimony that was presented to us. Now, it's difficult in those to take on that burden of, of making a judgment or discernment call because the first thing that I do in that sense is feel compassion for the, for the defendant. And if it was just me and him, it, it might have been something we could just work out together, right? Like, okay, I'll extend grace to you. I'll extend forgiveness to you. Hey, don't worry about that. Uh, go, your, go your way, pay your fine, be done, or whatever. But it, it's easy when it's just two of us to, to maybe extend grace or forgive quickly, obviously, depending on the circumstances. But when you're placed as a citizen, just a, a normal whatever citizen, into the justice system and given your instructions as a jury, as a juror, you're not able to take any of that personal stuff into account. You're not even able to take the the potential punishment or uh, the sentence that may be passed on this individual into account when you're deliberating about the facts of the case. So we had to make our decision, we had to make our judgment based on evidence and testimony that was presented to us in the trial. And and this brings us to our passage for today, which is actually in Matthew chapter 7. We will go to James 2 at one point. I wanted to read that as, as kind of a a balancing passage, but in Matthew chapter 7, we read here at the very beginning a couple of the, I think, most oft-quoted and most misquoted verses in the Bible. Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. And Matthew 7, 1 like I said, maybe one of the most often quoted and yet misused Bible verses in the world. So the first time that I ever went to a jury, actually the first time I went to a jury duty was in Compton, California, when I lived in L.A. So imagine that, driving into South Central to this big, cubic, white, uh, just concrete building and sitting in a jury room with 500 of your best friends from L.A. So that was interesting. Um, But the first time I ever served in Crick County, um, there was a gal at the very beginning, the the judge asked, are there people that can't stay or can't be part of this jury for some reason? Either you can't take the time off or you know the defendant or you know somebody who's one of the witnesses or something. And this gal stood up, this one gal stood up who excused herself basically from jury duty based on this verse. And she said, I believe the Bible teaches that I am not to judge anyone, and so I don't feel I can morally, ethically be part of a jury and make any sort of judgment on anyone. And the judge excused her. So if you ever need to get excused from jury duty, I suppose you could misquote scripture. You just have to talk to Jesus about that one. Um, But they believed that this verse taught that no human should ever pass any kind of judgment on another at all. But probably more often, I think this verse is, is used more like this. Someone does something, they, they say something or they act in a certain way or they live a certain kind of lifestyle and they 
look at you and they say, the Bible says, do not judge, so don't judge me. Have you ever heard that before? Ever said that before? Okay. <laughs> don't judge me. And, and ironically, what happens here is that Jesus' words actually get used to defend sin. To defend our own sinfulness, our own actions, our own behavior. And they get twisted to to be used in a way that Jesus never intended. So, so, so instead of seeing these verses, which we will see as a call to generously love others, they actually get twisted to defend our own sin. And, and all of, I think, the, all of the misuses of this verse really revolve around a misunderstanding of the word judge. What does it mean to judge someone. And when we think of the word judge, as in, hey, don't judge me, our, our definition, I think, is pretty narrow. And, and we narrow down the definition to really mean, when I say don't judge me, I'm saying don't condemn me, which is a, which is a pretty narrow definition of what it means to judge. It means to make any kind of critical or moral judgment on someone's actions or decisions. So when you look at someone and say, don't judge me, what you're really saying is don't condemn me. But is that really what Jesus means here? The word judge, I don't think, should be understood in such narrow terms. It has a very wide usage in Greek, but also in English. I mean, you think of the responsibilities. When I sat in a courtroom on a jury, there was a judge, and she had responsibilities that were pretty wide, in, in, including keeping the peace in the courtroom, making sure that the, that, the, that the case went along smoothly and quickly as it should have, and making sure that everything was legal. Her main job wasn't to condemn or to pass sentence on a defendant. Or consider even serving on a jury. Jurors don't have the responsibility of sentencing or condemning a defendant. Rather, my fellow jurors, including Tom Hall and I, had to use our reason. We had to use common sense. We had to use our own experience and our discernment to make judgments. We had to weigh the evidence. We had to take the testimony presented to us and judge how much weight to give to each particular piece of evidence and each witness. So even though we weren't technically judges, we had to make plenty of judgments in the course of our duty. So a more generous and I think accurate definition of the word judgment would be something akin to evaluation. Evaluating something rather than condemnation. In fact, the, the Greek word, the primary meaning of that wor- word in this verse is to set apart so as to distinguish or to separate. Separate something to make a distinction between two things. Um, you might think of going to the Crook County Fair. How many of you have ever uh, had an animal or an exhibit in the fair that was judged? How many of you have had children that have had... Okay, yeah, that's a whole different ball game right there. How many of you have served as a judge at the fair? I know there's a few who have, yeah. So some of you have served as judges at the fair. And when we think about that, when we think about the county fair, perhaps livestock judging, what the job of a judge is to separate and make distinctions. And those distinctions are made with blue and red ribbons. Right, those distinctions are made when saying this, this one is a champion, this one is a grand champion. 
And and we judge judge animals based on their attributes, their qualities, their conformity to a certain objective standard. And that's not a judgment of condemnation. We're not saying that, that, that red is condemned because they didn't get blue. We're just saying that they don't conform to the standard as well as the other one. At the fair, the, the discerning separation of judgment takes place in order to make a, a selection or articulate a preference of opinion for one thing over another. And to do so, if you go to the fair and you're competing, you want unbiased judges, right? You don't want a judge that's walking around with $20 bills in their pocket from all the parents who are also walking around hoping the judge pulls for their son or daughter. When you go into the courtroom, you, you want an unbiased, impartial, objective jury in the courtroom. And all of this begins, I think, as we think about these kind of judgments and judges and these discerning and, and making distinctions. All this should begin to help us get out what Jesus is trying to say here. He's not speaking of condemnation. He's speaking of believers. He's speaking to his disciples here. So he's speaking of disciples making or passing judgment on other disciples on preferences or opinion in a biased way. The verse might better be translated. Some commentators have added the word unfairly. Do not judge unfairly, lest you too be unfairly judged. And this nuance is, is strengthened in the, in the similar passage in the book of James. We read here in James 2, 1 through 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so there's this this sense where the the disciples are judging one another based on a false metric and making distinctions that shouldn't be made between them in order to put some people down and put some people up higher. And he calls them judges with evil thoughts. We continue to read in verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality... And James' point there that showing partiality is not loving your neighbor as yourself. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So according to James, the sin that's taking place in these churches in this instance is judging with evil thoughts or the sin of partiality, making unfair decisions about someone and treating them differently based on bias or based on unfair standards. And Jesus brings out this idea, if you look in verse 2 of Matthew 7, through this metaphor that he uses here where he says, with the measure by which you measure, you too will be measured. By the measure with which you measure, you too will be measured. So in the Old Testament... It was a crime of theft to use unfair weights and measures when engaging in commerce. So, so say you were, you were someone who was selling some of your grain or some kind of good, and you had a, a scale, 
right? A scale where you balance on each side. And you, you put the goods on one side and then you take out of your pouch different weights and measures to see how much that grain would weigh. Well, to, to carry around dishonest or unfair weights and measures would, would be to put a, a measure or a weight on there that said two ounces and yet it really only weighed an ounce and a half. Okay, and so, so you begin to, to steal from the person because you're, 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 you're giving them not as much as they've earned or, or as much as the product is, is worth. It's kind of like how you go to the doctor's office and the scale always shows more weight than it does at home, right? I'm, I'm kidding, of course. Every time, though, it's crazy. Okay. The point here is that only a thief uses false measures to take advantage of someone, and then they use true measures for themselves. They use a different sort of measure for other people than they do for themselves. And Jesus makes this point. Use the same weights and measures as you evaluate everyone else that you want used for yourself. So look down all the way to verse 12, which is Jesus' beautiful summary verse here. Where he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or again, we can look at James 2 where he says this, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the problem that Jesus is addressing is very simply Applying a different standard to others that I'm not willing to use on myself. So towards others, I'm critical. But towards myself, I'm pretty lenient. Towards others, I I lack grace. And towards myself, I lack self-awareness. Towards others, I'm a fault finder. But towards myself, I'm quick to justify Jesus illustrates this point with a pretty humorous example, which these three verses in the Bible actually convinced me that God has a pretty good sense of humor. And Jesus intended for his audience to laugh at these verses. It's a very humorous, kind of classic, tongue-in-cheek illustration, which is really intended to to capture our attention. I I would, would suppose that it's to get us to actually laugh at ourselves. Get us to laugh at the ludicrous way that we act and that we treat others. Here's what he says in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, so, so this illustration is clearly hyperbolic. J- Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. So you can imagine, here it is, two guys working on a job site together in construction. One of them forgets to put their safety glasses on. He's using the saw, and he gets something, gets, gets a piece of, of sawdust back in his eye, and he's doing this thing, blinking. It's hurting. You, you've done that, right? It hurts to get something in your eye. And he turns to his buddy, and you know how we do. Hey, Do you see anything in there? And his buddy turns around, stands up, and he's got an eight-foot two-by-four in his eye. Right? And he's walking around with his eight-foot two-by-four. He says, oh, no, let me look at it. And as soon as he swings this way, what does he do? He knocks Joe's guitar. Okay, he smacks his buddy in the head. He turns this way. He knocks tools all over the place. And he just begins to create chaos because he doesn't know he has a two-by-four in his eye. 
That's the picture that Jesus is painting. It's like, do you see how ludicrous you are when you do stuff like that? You try to help, but you're creating more chaos and harm because you haven't taken care of the thing that's right in front of your face that you're completely blind to. And Jesus underlines his point by actually calling his disciples hypocrites. This is the only time where Jesus calls his disciples hypocrites. He usually reserves that word for the Pharisees, but now he says, you hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So when you are unfairly critical of others, but unaware, unable, and unwilling to critique yourself or to take critique, then you really have no place to speak. Your presence is only going to cause damage and chaos. You cannot help anyone until you're willing to be helped yourself. You can't correct, you can't rebuke, you can't exhort where you yourself have not submitted to the same kind of correction. You can't heal someone if you are sick yourself and refuse to take your medicine. So easy to miss our own blind spots and treat others in ways that we would never want to be treated ourselves. And if you think back over these last two years, all of us have had plenty of opinions on the coronavirus, on masks, on vaccines, on politics, on race, on so many things. And it's really easy for us to render judgment on whatever side of the issue we are on without duly considering our own blind spots. I mean, from, from my own vantage point, I don't know how many times I've used the word in the last two years, the phrase, I just don't get it. I don't get this. I don't understand why this person's doing this or making this decision or not doing this thing. And it's really easy to go from, I just don't get it, to that person is wrong, to that person is evil. Really quick slope. I don't get it. They're wrong. They're evil. And we do that so much without even looking at the places where we too might be wrong, might misunderstand. We lack grace, humility, love, and compassion. So that's what it means to judge, to, to, to make right discernments without bias. And and Jesus, though, is not prohibiting discernment. He's actually not prohibiting judgment. He's just prohibiting judgment that's based on bias. The way we usually read Matthew 7.1, hey, don't judge me. We're calling people to ignore our sin because, hey, everyone's a sinner, right? Everyone has specks and logs in their eyes, so who are we to render judgment about someone else's sin? Only hypocrites make judgment calls about the faults and sins and shortcomings of others. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. The text subtly actually leads us to the conclusion that making judgment calls, discerning between good and evil, discerning between wisdom and folly, between good persons and bad persons, is necessary as we rock the road of discipleship with each other, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. There will clearly be times when we need to help somebody get a two-before out of their eye so that they don't hurt anybody else. 
And there were also times, Jesus implies, when we need to help our brother or sister just simply get a speck out of their eye. First, get the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Sometimes judgment and discernment is necessary. Look down just a few verses to verse 15. When Jesus warns us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he goes on to say in verse 16, You will recognize them by their fruit. So Jesus is calling, calling us to make a judgment call. You have to look at someone's fruit. Is it the fruit of a wolf or is it the fruit of a sheep? Make a judgment call, discern, and treat the individual accordingly. A few chapters later, in chapter 10, we see Jesus send out his disciples to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cleanse lepers, to cast out demons. And in verse 11 through 14, he says this, Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. Now, they're not going to go in and see over somebody's door the word worthy, They're going to have to meet people. They're going to have to interact. They're going to have to make judgment, discernment calls. He says, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So he's clearly directing his disciples here to make discerning judgment calls about people who are worthy, people who are not worthy, people who are going to listen and accept, and people who are going to reject. And he even says, wipe off the dust of your feet and walk away. Disciples on mission must make distinctions. They must make judgment calls about who is worthy and who isn't, who deserves their peace and who doesn't. Those who deserve the message of the gospel and those who will simply dismiss it and trample on it. And Jesus makes this point in one of the most difficult verses in the Bible. Look at verse 6 of chapter 7. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turning, attack you. Which, if you just take that out of context, like, what in the world, Jesus, are you talking? In context, it hardly makes sense. (laughs) You read it, it just feels like he just threw out this random saying, you're like, okay, thanks, Jesus, for that. But in the context of what we're talking about here, of making discerning judgment calls, don't Don't judge unfairly or or based on a different standard than you're willing to apply to yourself. Jesus calls us to make judgment calls. You have to know who the dogs or the pigs are so that you don't put what is holy in front of them, so that you don't throw the, the worthy pearls in front of them and then have them attack you. So in the midst, in the context of warning us from judging others, Jesus is clear that we have to make distinctions about dogs and pigs. Those who are, in the Hebrew context, dogs and pigs were unclean, violent, unworthy animals. And we have to be careful in our interactions with them. We have to take care not to get not to get attacked. And he's basically saying, don't entrust valuable and holy things. Don't entrust the gospel, the kingdom, the church, People to those who will only sully and destroy both them and you. Jesus is calling us to make wise discernments and hard decisions sometimes. Now, finally, and perhaps most famously, 
Jesus gives instructions to his disciples to practice what has come to be known as church discipline. We see this in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. And it's not popular to talk about church discipline, but Jesus talks about it. And church discipline is an act of love within a Christian community that requires believers to practice difficult, godly discernment, to make judgment calls about the behavior and character of of those who would call themselves members of Christ's church. But in that, true church discipline requires a high high degree of self-awareness of making sure we don't have logs in our eyes, of, of humility and, and nuanced discernment, which is driven, it's not driven by partiality. It's not driven by, by a desire to condemn, but from love and a heart for restoration. We don't avoid church discipline because, hey, we're all sinners anyway. We enter into and embrace church discipline because we are all sinners. And yet we all want what is best for one another. We all want Christ's best for our brothers and sisters. And so we enter into relationships that are hard and sometimes cause us to to rebuke and encourage and exhort and call people from their sin to follow Jesus and holiness. So when we shy away from honest and humble discernment and evaluation, from, from wise judgment and rebuke, We don't do anyone any good. We actually abdicate our responsibility for our brothers and sisters. We kind of wash our hands and say, you know what? I don't want to be judgmental, so you just kind of do you. You do whatever you want to do. I'm not going to say anything because Jesus said don't judge. But for Christian growth and transformation to take place, we as believers must be willing, as James tells us to confess our sins to one another, to be called out on our blind spots, to be rebuked and exhorted towards obedience, towards pleasing Christ. If I have a two-by-four in my eye, I want somebody to tell me. And so should you. You see, if parents never discipline their children because, hey, we're all sinners, then we know they've abdicated their role as instructors, as teachers, as parents. And the same goes for us as brothers and sisters in the church. So in conclusion, I I, want to give you two points just to kind of hang our hats on as we conclude here, and it's these two things. That Jesus desires, Jesus wants for the church to be a community of grace and love and wisdom. See, Jesus' words are not a prohibition on judgment per se, but rather against unfair and partial judgment, which stems from maybe a desire to critique others, to, to look down, hypocritically, down our noses at others, which ultimately creates inequality in the midst of the church, which should be, the church should be the community in the world in which we are all equal sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. The church is to be the most unique community in the world because it's supposed to be a community that's marked by the generous love of God Himself, where we live by the one commandment, love Others, love your neighbor as yourself. Treat others as you would want them to treat you. Church is to be a community marked by generous love 
radical grace and spirit-filled wisdom. And then the second concluding point is just this, that Jesus wants each of us, so that first one was really for the church as a whole, but Jesus wants each of us, I think, to cultivate self-awareness and humility. To be a community of love, to be a community of grace, to be a community of wisdom, is to admit that we need each other to help us see and remove the logs and the specks that are in our own eyes, which requires each of us to grow in the graces of self-awareness and humility. And self-awareness is that virtue of seeking to be aware of my own sin, that I want to know where my weaknesses are. I want to know where my blind spots are so I don't run into somebody else. And these might be habitual blind spots that I'm aware of, but I don't always see. None of us is self-aware enough to not have any blind spots. That's self-awareness, just being aware, wanting to be aware of where I tend to fall into sin. And humility is, is the virtue, let me put it this way, of not being surprised or defensive but rather open and gracious when I have my blind spots pointed out to me. Hey, you got a log in your eye. Can I help you remove it? And instead of getting defensive or swinging and hitting people with that log, I actually say, yeah, let's figure out how to get it out of there because it's really uncomfortable. Self-awareness and humility, I think they work themselves out in patience and grace with others in their own faults. And so I I think it's healthy for us to ask ourselves in every interaction, every conversation with others and, and maybe even about others, are we measuring the other person? Am I approaching them, measuring, seeing them? Am I measuring them with the same measure with which I want to be measured? Am I extending the same kind of grace to them that I want them to extend to me? Am I extending the same kind of love to them that I want them to extend to me? Because in the end, we all stand under God's judgment. And all he's doing is saying, hey, treat others the way that you would want me to treat you. Treat others the way that we would want God to treat us. So ask yourself, how can I think and believe the best about this person and love them well? And even when we're put in a situation where where we have to make judgment calls, where we have to discern, where we have to distinguish, where we have to decide, and I think when we've learned to not live by condemnation, but with self-awareness and with humility, even in our judgments, we will be filled with love for the other person. Because that other person is, in the end, our brother or our sister. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you as as children. uh, Weak, pitiable, blind, naked, cold, needy. And as you say to your churches in Revelation, come to you and, and purchase for free. We want to come to you and, and, and get grace because we need it. Grace to help us in our time of need. And, and our need is deep, Lord, because it's not just that we need others to treat us with grace. We need to, to see our own blind spots. We need to see how we don't treat others with grace or how we are unloving or unforgiving. And Father, we pray that you would heal us and forgive us from that. 
We pray that you would work in each of us a self-awareness and a humility. Father, would we judge only according to right judgment? And with good measures and in good judgment, would we judge in humility and grace and love only for the other? Lord, I pray for each of us this week that as we have interactions with our brothers and sisters, with our family, with those even outside of the church, Lord, that you would help us to walk asking ourselves, how can I extend grace to this person? How can I see them the way that you see them and treat them in the way, Lord, that we each want you to treat us? And finally, Lord, we thank you for Jesus who took the judgment that we deserve on himself, paying for our sins, transforming us, changing us, and bringing us into your family as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. We pray all this in your name and for your glory. Amen.